Welcome Dr. Ken Bain this morning. Thank you very much, choir and everyone involved today. What a delight to be here, an honor to stand here. And I um, want to join the staff in thanking you, those of you who've served, how important it is for us to know that and to honor you and the many who are still serving, many in harm's way. I know that they are in, in your prayers. I'm always honored to stand here and I appreciate Pastor Woods asking me to to do that. Hope he enjoys himself. I can tell you, having pastored for many years, you've got to have some breaks. And uh, thank God that he's being able to do that. And I'm honored to fill this pulpit where we hear such wonderful preaching and music and worship all the time. So it's an honor to be able to stand here. Well, I want to share with you a very positive message today about saying no. Now, that sounds strange, doesn't it? A positive message about saying no. I was thinking about this. Maybe the word you heard first in your life, maybe you were able to say mama, daddy first, but somewhere in there, quite often you heard the word no. I think you know what I mean. We probably were more acquainted with that word. In fact, at times we thought our name was no John Jones or something like that. And we heard the no, but for a very good reason. I got to thinking about Jesus Christ. And one day in thinking about his life and sort of tracing it, it occurred to me that the first words that Jesus ever spoke when he began his ministry, the first word was no. And he said it three times. And I got to thinking about that. Here's this Jesus that we normally think of as being very positive. Uh, I would think that he would have a lot of yeses and that his ministry would probably open up right from the very beginning by saying, yes, 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 it is given unto you or something like that. But he said no three times. I've discovered something though. He said no so he could say yes to some more important things. And in our lives, friends, I've, I've discovered this, that sometimes we have to say no in order to say yes to the better things and the more important things. That's not, that's not a real popular thing. In our world today, we're supposed to be able to say yes, absolutely, positively, all the time. But it's interesting that uh, Jesus set the pace for us, set the standard for us, and he always said those no's in relationship to being tempted, being tempted by the devil. We can say the same thing. I've discovered that I can tell a lot about you by what you say no to. And I can tell a lot about you by what you say yes to. And Jesus gives us that pattern. Now I want to take this very common passage of Scripture and show how Jesus effectively used the words no and then turns around and effectively uses the words yes. As I thought about this, and if you'll turn with me to Luke's Gospel, Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. Very familiar passage of Scripture, the temptation of Jesus Christ. But I want to share some things before and after to make this really stick in our minds as to what our Lord is trying to say to us 
and do for us in these times. If you'll look in chapter 1 of Luke, Jesus doesn't say anything. It's just all about the prophecies, about getting ready for him to come. So there's chapter 1. Mary is singing. The birth is foretold. Jesus has said nothing yet. We come to chapter 2. We have the birth of Jesus. We see the shepherds and the angels. We see all of that. We see Jesus presented at the temple. At this moment, up to this time, he's not said a word that's been recorded. Obviously, there were probably words, but nothing recorded as of yet. All we've heard about is his coming and his actually getting here. And then when you get to the end of chapter 3, something changes. There is a change in what is happening. And following that, we hear Jesus speak. And we're going to be asking, what did he say no to? This is a very interesting thought about Jesus Christ. I know that he knew the Father's plan. I, knew, I know when he arrived here, he knew what his ultimate destiny was to be. He knew all of that. And I have to imagine that at times when he and the father were conversing as they often did, I must, it must be that he asked, is today the day? All that's fulfilled, is it today? Is it coming today? Now, I'm sure he did his work in the carpenter shop and all that and then every once in a while he turned to the father and he would say, is this the day? I'm ready to start what you've asked me to do. Is this the day? And the father is saying, no, not yet. It is not time. It is not time. I have to say no to you so that you can be revealed in time. This went along for many years while Jesus' life was being developed in anonymity, the hidden life, a long time before he was revealed. It's somewhat like an iceberg. Jesus, when he's presented, that's based on a lot of things that have happened down beneath, this being quiet, this being in an anonymous state, this building relationship, growing identity, understanding the will and purpose of God. All of that was going on. Now comes that time when the Father says, it's time. And this is what happens as we read it in Luke chapter 3, verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, let me put a little aside here. Luke is the gospel of prayer and the Holy Spirit more than any other of the writers. He talks about both of these and he quite often links them together. Here is one of these times. He was baptized in the Spirit as he was praying. How about the upper room where he talked about that? Luke again talked about that. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as they had been in a time and a season of prayer. They're put together. As he was praying, heaven was open and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Now I want you to catch this next thing. And you answer the question, is it time, Father? <laughs> you can join Jesus. Is it time? Is the time yet? And I think the Father speaks out over the banisters. It is time. It is time. Bodily form, the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And I want you to catch this. And a voice from heaven 
You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Friends, I want to tell you something today. That's what he's saying to you. Our Lord said to you, and I'll catch this. At this time, Jesus has not taught a lesson. He's not healed a body. He's not raised anyone from the dead. He's not done the Sermon on the Mount. He's not given the end time things. He's not said anything. He's not done any ministry. And in our stage of life here in the West, we think, well, he can't possibly be pleased with us until we've done something. (laughs) We put the thing on having done something. So if we were to write it today in the good old U.S. of A., we would say he was out healing and preaching, setting people free, giving his time to others, and then a voice from heaven came out of heaven and said, well done. No, 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 no. If you don't get anything else I say today, get this. Before Jesus did one thing, before Jesus said one thing, before Jesus did any healing, before Jesus did any miracles, before he did anything, before he even got started in his ministry, the the very beginning, the Father says, you are my well-loved, King James says, beloved son. Could I tell you something, folks? When he had a bad day, he still could hear, you're my son. You're my son. On a good day, when he'd heal the sick and all kinds of things happen, Well, he could hear it. You're my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. Hallelujah. And then when they had him at Nazareth, going to throw him over the cliff, he had had a bad day as he entered his ministry. He had bad days too. He had some bad days and when they were going to kill him, you know what? He still heard, you're my beloved son. Folks, please hear me. Jesus is saying to you, just as his father said, you're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter. You're my beloved children. When you have good days, I am still your loving father. On days it's not so good, I am still your father. I am so glad he put it first and not after he had accomplished anything. He went on to accomplish a lot of things. So Jesus hasn't spoken yet. So my question was, okay, what's he going to say when he speaks? And I guess I thought it was going to be a real positive word. Well, let's see what he said. Let's see what his first words. He's not begun his ministry. He's just been baptized. He's full of the Spirit. He goes into the temptation, full of the Spirit. He goes over to start his ministry, full of the Holy Spirit. That's the way to live, isn't it? Start full of the Holy Spirit. When the desert comes, stay full of the Holy Spirit. When you enter into works of ministry, stay full of the Holy Spirit. And he did that. Part of the reason why was because he was able to say no to some things so he could say yes to some other things. So let's see what he said. Chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. That makes sense, doesn't it? He was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. 
Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. Here's his first no. His first no was to something that seemed very simple. Is there anything wrong with eating? Is there anything wrong with bread? No. See, here, here's part of Satan's lure. His lure is to take natural things that are okay in themselves but get us to blow them out of proportion so that they become dangerous to us. So he comes in with this and he is saying something that's very important. And, and this first thing, uh, I call it, he is not going to say yes. In fact, he says no to self-gratification. Nothing wrong with food, but that's not my purpose. That's not what I'm called to do. I'm here to do a major thing, and that is to give my life a ransom for many. See, I'm convinced that this whole battle, I, I think it is not three temptations. I think it's one temptation with three layers. One temptation, and what was that about? The temptation was to pull Jesus who had made the decision after he came to this earth to take upon himself the form of human beings, the form of a serpent. He, a servant. He came to this point and the point was that I'm going to live this all the way out. Satan tried to hit him on each one of these to make him pull out of his humanity, go back over into his divine prerogatives and in so doing not go to the cross as a human being which would have violated so there's a one big temptation but it's in three layers and here's the first one if you had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights what do you think would be your first call how many of you think it would be bread or food see this is what we call appetite could i tell you that satan's first attempt on your life and mine and on jesus life was to get us into into our thought about eating, our thought in this case about moving into this realm to where instead of food serving us, he would be serving food and he violated. I call this first one not on self-gratification, but it is, it is something about his desire for food, something natural, appetite, let's call it. Appetite, something natural, nothing wrong with food. But see, he also knew from studying scriptures that when the children of Israel came out of bondage, they had come out of bondage to Egypt and Egyptian leaders. Then they get out into, the, out into the wilderness and they're out of food. And all of a sudden, God gives them, gives them the manna from above. Manna. Think about it. Ladies, it wasn't hard to do a menu. Monday, manna. Tuesday, manna. Wednesday, manna. Thursday, manna, Friday, ad infinitum. So much so that these people turned around and no longer were they in bondage to Egyptians. They were in bondage to their own appetites. Their own appetites. Because it wasn't long after that they said, man, this manna is getting old. This is not good. This what is it is not working. What are we getting here? Then they complain and what does he do? Out of his bounty he pours forth quail every day. Quail on Monday, quail on Tuesday, change of, uh, change of menus here. Uh, quail on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And they got so tangled up with that. Then they went to this. They said, man, those Greek, those leeks and those onions back in Egypt really sounded good. Where is their bondage now? I think their bondage is to their appetite. And I, th I think Jesus was very clear on this, I will not be controlled by that. I'm on a fast. I am here in relationship. 
And then, of course, he answers as he does every time. He answers from the Word of God. Could I tell you that if you want to defeat temptation, you anchor it in the Word of God. You anchor it in the identity of your own heart. You go back to those times you spent in anonymity. You offer the things that you did in your devotional time, coming up to the top of that. You offer up all of that, and you lay it aside, and yes, Scripture will answer it every time. You know Scripture is very powerful, isn't it? You know that, and I know that. I worked for a period of time, I think many of you know that, with the David Wilkinson Ministries. I've been shocked, uh, obviously, by his recent death. I can tell you that David Wilkerson was a wonderful person. I admired him greatly. There was never an issue about morals, ethics, or anything else. He loved his Lord. And uh, I am so proud of how he lived his life, much like what I'm talking about here. Time away in anonymity, but coming to the point of serving and in a powerful way. This story actually happened to him. It's one of my favorite stories of all time. If you've heard it before, then... Uh, uh, repetition is good for you. I'll, I'll say it again, but uh, I don't think many of you have. Maybe my class on Wednesday night, they've heard nearly all my jokes at least three times. Sometimes in one week, they've heard all three. No, that's not. But they're here today in my support group, and I'm really thankful for them. But David Wilkerson was out preaching on this uh, spring-like day uh, in Brooklyn, and in that city at that time, you could close up both ends of the street, put a blockade, and then you've got these really tall tenement houses on both sides, if you've ever been there. And David would set up a platform down there in that city. If you got a permit and an American flag, you could stand there and preach, do anything you wanted. He was preaching out there on this spring day, and uh, the crowd was sort of sleepy. It was one of those sort of warm days, not like this, but it was starting to get warm. And he noticed, and finally... Oftentimes, you know, preachers aren't always through, but they quit. Have you ever? So he was through, and he quit, and he went down. There was this disheveled guy right down at the end there, and uh, David started to go by him, and he stopped and said, Sir, is there any way I can help you today? He said, uh, Well, no, I don't know what you mean. He said, Would you like to know my Savior? And he said, Well, no, I don't think so. Uh, he said, Well, is there anything else thing I can do for you? And he said, Yes, give me your Bible. And here's David Wilkerson, man of God, this disheveled guy saying, give me your Bible. You know how protective we are over our own word. And so David felt like he ought to give it to him, though. So David Wilkerson reached out and gave him his Bible. He said, could I ask you, what, what are you going to do with this? He said, listen, man, times are so hard, I don't have any money. He said, I don't even have money to buy paper to roll my cigarettes. We know what kind of cigarettes he was talking about in the 70s, right? And he took it, David, and he said, you know what? I've discovered that pages of the Bible, they're thin, they're nice, they are great for rolling up your stuff. And so well, David Wilkerson is thinking, I've never had such a request as that. So he felt in his heart to give it to him. And he did. He said, but you've got to make one agreement with me. And that is that before you smoke a page, you've got to read it. And the man said, okay, that's a fair deal. I will do it. That was it. Time rocked along. Another several months later, Wilkerson was up preaching in the same spot. He looked down there and didn't even recognize this man. Dressed in a suit, 
looked like he was a Park Avenue lawyer or a broker or something, almost went by him and he said, uh, the man stopped him and said, you don't recognize me, do you? He said, no, I don't think so. He said, I'm the man to whom you gave your Bible. Really? What happened to you? Look at you. A lot different. And here's what he told him. He said, well, sir, what happened is I smoked through Matthew. <laughs> and then he said, I smoked through Mark. And I smoked through Luke. And I smoked John chapter 1. And I smoked John chapter 2. Then I read over into John 3, and I started reading. And I got down to that verse 16. And it said, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And he looked up at David Wilkerson, and he said, And I want to tell you something, sir. He said, John smoked me. <laughs> John smoked me. That, my friend, is the power of the Word of God. Would you be shocked then why Jesus would call out to Satan every time he gave him one of those strong desires, one of those lures, which we call temptation? Do you understand why he answered in the power and the authority of the Word? And I suggest to you there is no better answer. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against God. When those lures, even if it's over appetite, even over something on the surface like food, but there was something deeper in it. That's the first time he said no. Let's go to the second time he says no. The devil led him up to a high place, showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, there it is again, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. See, he had learned to anchor his words and anchor his position in the authority of the Father. Now, I called this one as Jesus entered his ministry. He said, my ministry, ministry is not going to be marked by self-gratification. I'm not just feeding people food and all of those things. I, I, that's not what it's about. It has deeper, deeper connotations. And then here comes the second of these. And I call this the fact that Jesus said, my life and my ministry will not be marked by powers and authorities on this earth. It will not be marked by authority. I am under authority to do the will of him who sent me. My ministry and my life will not be about that because he knew something. He knew the word. And you know what it said? We say it so well. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. I want to tell you something. We're in good relationship with government and should be. Could I tell you, though, we are not dependent on our government 
to meet our needs as far as worship and ministry are concerned? Are you aware of that? We're not dependent on the taxes. We're not dependent on those things. They're great. But our power source, our authority source is not in this world. It is outside this world. And Jesus said, I'm not going to be marked. Aren't you glad his ministry was not marked by dependence upon Caesar and all of those others who were there? They were not. And he said, that's it. Here's authority. So my ministry will not be marked by appetite. It will not be by self-gratification. It will not be by another authority. My authority comes from the Father. It will not be there. Now here comes the next one. Here comes the third time he said no. This is interesting. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord, your God, to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Mark that one. The tempter will come again and again and again. He will keep coming. But listen to this. Third thing, Jesus said, no, no. Wouldn't that be spectacular? Can you imagine that? The highest place in Jerusalem was the temple, and the highest part of the temple was the pinnacle. And so he is saying, go to the highest point. You've got an audience down there. Listen. Listen, Jesus. You want to short-circuit this thing? You know what's coming. You know the pain. You know Gethsemane. You know Calvary. You know all that's coming. So if you'll just get up here, why don't you just throw yourself down and people just say, yeah, yeah, whoa, here he is. It would have been spectacular, wouldn't it? Can't you just see somebody fleeing, firing off of the top of that? And down below, all the ooing and the aahing. Oh, wow, look at that, look at that. Here's his note. I want us to remember it. Jesus said, my ministry will not be marked by the spectacular. My ministry will be marked by the miraculous. Could I tell you there's a lot of difference between the miraculous and the spectacular? Some who are doing the spectacular don't have the miraculous. And some who are doing the miraculous are not going to be out there anywhere that you know anything about. There are people today still in their anonymity, still in their hiddenness all over this world who are laying hands on people and they're being healed, eyes being opened, Hears being opened. They're doing miraculous and powerful things because they are not dependent on the spectacular but on the miraculous power of God. And Jesus says, this is it. Let's call this one applause so we can remember it. Yeah. Appetite, authority, applause. And they were applauding him. And he was saying, no No, no. Then I thought, well, where does he say yes? It's not like Jesus just to say no to everything. When does he say yes? And I didn't have to go very far to answer that question. And you don't have to go either. Let your eyes drop down to the 14th verse. And just start right there. Jesus returned to Galilee 
in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole country. Now go down to verse 18. He's given the scroll of Isaiah, and here's what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. No, no, no. So you can say, yes, yes, yes. Now, what is his ministry going to be marked by as he takes off from here and enters into his ministry? Here it is. Yes to the poor. <laughs> Check it. Yes to the poor. Not self-gratification, but yes to the poor. See, the food thing didn't get his attention. What's the next one? Oh, how about this one? Oh, yes to the prisoners. Yes to the poor. Yes to the prisoners. Yes to the blind. Yes to the oppressed. Yes to the year of the Lord. Here's his ministry. Not self-gratification. Not kingdoms of this world. Not spectacular. But he said all of that. No, no, no. So he could say yes, yes, yes to you and to me. And our ministries ought to be marked the same way. Yes to the poor. Yes to the prisoner. Yes to the blind. Yes to the oppressed. Yes to the hurting. Yes to those who are out. And I got to thinking about this, no, 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 yes, yes, yes. And it occurred to me on this weekend, I need to say this too. Our patriots of the past, they said no to taxation without representation so they could say yes. They turned down oppression. They turned down neutrality. They turned down all of those things. They turned down those things that would not allow them freedom to preach and to speak and to pray. They turned all that down. So even they, and we've got people across this world right now who are saying no, no, no to some of their life and pleasures and so forth so they can say yes to the defense of the Constitution of the United States of America. My friend, that's part of it. That is part of it. Let me conclude with this because Jesus came down, didn't he? He came down so we could go up. He came and took our sins so we didn't have to. He's done all of these things for us. You talk about freedom. That's, this is the 4th of July, or the 3rd, but this is freedom, and that's what it is. I'm reminded of the story in the American West, the old stagecoach days. We'll remember those, if by no other way, by watching some of the Western movies we saw on television. We saw those stagecoaches. I'm told that you could, you could buy a first-class ticket on one of those stagecoaches. It cost more money, but you could get a first-class ticket. And that first-class ticket, this is what it allowed you to do. So if along the way, a wheel rolls off, there is warfare going on, there is mud, and you're stuck in mud, if you've got a first-class ticket, you just sit there. You don't have to get off. You don't have to do anything. You can just sit there, just lean back, and enjoy it. Or you could buy a second-class ticket. The second-class ticket meant that you could ride, but if there were problems and there were difficulties, you have to get off of the stagecoach and go stand over there while work is being done. 
Or you could buy a third-class ticket. And here's what the third-class ticket would do for you. Not only were you on there, but if trouble came, you had to get off. And you didn't get to just stand there either. If the wheel were down in the mud, you got down in the mud. You had a third-class ticket which gave you the right to work and drive. Here are those second-class tickets over there watching you. First-class ticket still sound asleep on the stage. Sounds a little like people, doesn't it? First-class, second-class, not in terms of their quality, but in terms of their work. And here's this third-class ticket. And it meant you could work. You could get in the mud. You could get in the stuff. And you could help them. Third-class ticket. Wow. Wow. If anyone ever had the right and ever deserved and ever had a first-class ticket, it was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Could I tell you something for your sake and for mine? For your sake and for mine. He turned it down. Why? So he could get a third-class ticket and come down to where we are. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Made himself of no reputation. In the Greek it says, ho theos. He was with the God and he became ho doulos, the servant. He took upon himself the form of humanity going to the depth of taking on the form of a servant and giving his life for you and for me. He exchanged his first-class privileges to take on the third class. That's why Jesus said, no, 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 because he partakes of our life. He is here with us to carry out his function. May our lives, may our ministries be marked not by self-gratification, not by authority that we might possess, and not, certainly not, by doing work in the spectacular rather than the miraculous. He came down, said no, 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 so he could say yes to those things that really mattered. Folks, let's have yes, yes living in a no, no world so that we may fulfill the purpose of our Lord.